All right, turn to Revelation, and uh, if you've got your outline there, we're going to start, we'll just go ahead and read, we're going to read uh, Revelations 20, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll listen uh, to the audio. We have one more week uh, in our series, so next, sun, next Wednesday we'll, we'll wrap this up, and then I think um, the next Wednesday night after that, um, I... Uh, my habit is often to listen to uh, preaching while I am working out, and I heard a really great message uh, by Adrian Rogers on um, on the rapture and uh, looking for the rapture. I think is what it's titled. So I'm either going to try to preach that to you, or I'm just going to let him preach it to you uh, in two weeks. So it'll kind of wrap up our whole whole series. So Revelations 20 uh, verses one through three. Again, uh, like last week, if you here, we had a lot a lot of scripture, so I uh, got a lot of it on the. Uh, the screen for you, but we're uh, mainly um, launching off from here, this passage, 1 through 6. Uh, so Revelations 20, 1 through 6, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, set a seal on him, so, they should deceive, uh, so that he should deceive the nations no more, Till the thousand years were finished, but after these things must, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the, their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first Resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him uh, for a thousand years. All right, so now we'll listen to uh, the audio. Chapter 9 The King. It was near sunset, and Eva McLennan stood ankle deep in a river while bathing her two year old daughter. The water Lead gray and covered with scum reeked with decay. She hated to dip little Sophie into it, but she had no better alternative. The river was in its death throes, as were all the rivers that hadn't dried up during the past seven years. The river was 50 yards from the wooded camp where she and her husband Ryan and a dozen others were hiding. She never imagined when she was growing up that she'd be a fugitive from the law one day. She and the rest of the people at camp were Christians, converted by a zealous Messianic Jew after the sudden disappearance of Christians all over the world. Since that time, the president of the European Union, Judas Christopher, had amassed enough power to annex the United States and the rest of the civilized world as part of his growing empire. His edicts had grown increasingly repressive against religious minorities. Eva well remembered the day the decree had gone into effect requiring all citizens to carry a government-issued number that would allow them to exchange goods, land, food, and services. But there was a condition attached. Everyone who received the number had to swear to worship no god but Judas Christopher. Many members in Eva's house church had consented to the order, but for Eva and Ryan, yielding was unthinkable. They knew from reports coming out of other cities that if they did not accept the number, they would forfeit all their property and be barred from selling and buying. If they refused to worship Judas Christopher, 
they would be herded like cattle into boxcars and shipped off to some undisclosed location where their fate would be sealed. Ryan, Eva, and about 40 other Christians had stuffed all the food and necessities they could fit into their vehicles and drove to a remote mountain, where they pushed their cars into a lake. Then they hiked deep into the woods and set up camp. They survived by foraging for roots, nuts, fruit, and berries, and by hunting small game with bows and arrows. Life was a continual struggle for survival. The forest, like the rest of the planet, was reeling from the catastrophic disasters that had ravaged the earth. Volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, fires, and diseases. Pollution had contaminated the water and the air, and the sun burned as red as an infected sore against the smoggy sky. Though the fugitives boiled their water to purify it, they had already lost several members to sickness. Eva couldn't remember the last time it had rained. President Christopher had made clear his intent to cleanse the earth of all Jews and Christians. The group always had to be on the lookout, and they'd been forced to move camp twice when troops had come too close. On Sundays, the little company always gathered for worship. One Sunday, troops searching the forest had heard them singing and conducted a raid. Half the group managed to escape on foot, but the rest were captured. The survivors moved deeper into the woods, not daring to return for their tents and supplies. Eva gazed at little Sophie, splashing happily in the putrid water. She wondered whether her daughter had any future at all. How much longer could they survive? She lifted the child from the water and began to dry her with her skirt. Suddenly, terrified screams erupted from the camp. Eva scooped her daughter into her arms, clapped her hand over the toddler's mouth, and crouched behind a hedge of briars. She heard a scuffle, followed by the unmistakable crack of a rifle. When the clamor ceased, a gravelly voice bellowed, March, you rebels! That way! The woods grew silent. Eva trembled violently but remained hidden. Just before dark, she crept back to the campsite and found it empty. Where Dada? Sophie asked. Eva tried to respond, but no words would come out. She knew Ryan wasn't coming back. She considered staying at the campsite and using its supplies, but the glow of distant flashlights made her change her mind. She frantically bagged the little food that remained and grabbed a gallon of boiled water. Then she fled into the woods. Eva wandered through the forest, carrying Sophie for most of a week. Every time the child asked for Dada, hot tears welled up in Eva's eyes. She knew they would never see Ryan again. Had it not been for Sophie, she would have dropped to the earth and smothered her grief under the blanket of death. But she plodded on. During the day, she found shade to protect them from the fevered sun, and in the evenings, she searched for berries and nuts. The water began to run low. She lost all sense of direction and had no idea whether she was moving toward danger or away from it. Every night she heard wolves howling in the distance. She shuddered at their unearthly wails and hugged little Sophie closer. A few days after the raid, the moment Eva had been dreading finally arrived. Their water ran out. Without a way to start a fire, she couldn't purify the sludgy water from the dead streams. Exhausted, hungry, and thirsty, like Hagar of Scripture, Eva placed her child in the shade of a bush, dropped down beside her, and wept. My poor little darling, you never had a chance at life. I'm so sorry. 
but soon we shall both see the face of God. The heat closed in, and Eva's eyelids grew heavy. The last thing she heard before sleep overtook her was the eerie sound of the wolves in the distance. When she awakened, the entire atmosphere had changed. A cool breeze caressed her skin. A cloud covered the sun, not the usual ashy haze from an erupted volcano or an incinerated city, but a delicious, fresh-looking rain cloud. The boom of distant thunder rolled across the heavens. Moments later, it began to rain, glorious rain. Eva exulted in its freshness on her parched skin. She opened the jug and let it fill with water. She and Sophie drank deeply. The wine of Cana could not have tasted better. As the rain continued, Eva took Sophie in her arms, dancing in the downpour the way she'd seen Gene Kelly do in one of his classic movies. Before nightfall, she found a cave and made a bed of leaves for her and Sophie. Again, she heard the eerie wail of wolves. They sound so much closer now, she thought as she drifted off to sleep. Eva slept soundly through the night until Sophie's laugh awakened her. She struggled to open her eyes as sunlight streamed through the mouth of the cave. Doggy, she heard Sophie say. Eva rolled over to join her daughter's little game. Suddenly her eyes widened in horror. Sophie was toddling toward a huge gray wolf that stood just six feet away. Several other wolves lay about the cave. Doggy, the child repeated. No, Sophie, Eva screamed. Come back. She threw herself toward her daughter, determined to die with her. But to her shock, the wolf began wagging its tail. It lowered its head and came closer, licking Sophie's face as she giggled with delight. I must be dreaming, Eva muttered. But it wasn't a dream. She picked up her child, and the other wolves gathered around her, wagging their tails and gazing at her expectantly. With a tentative hand, she reached down and stroked the head of the nearest animal. Its happy tail shifted into high gear, and other wolves pressed toward her, jostling for equal treatment. Astounded, Eva stepped through the pack to leave the cave and find food. Several wolves followed her. She found a pecan tree and stuffed her pockets full of nuts, surprised that the birds nearby didn't scatter as she walked among them. A squirrel scampered down a tree as she approached. On impulse, she held out a pecan to it. The creature boldly took it from her hand. Something really odd is going on here, she thought. Still carrying Sophie, Eva reached a clearing filled with deer grazing. She expected the animals to bolt for the woods, but they merely looked up briefly and continued their foraging as she and two of the wolves passed through. Sophie, she said to her daughter, this is utterly surreal. The sky was now as clear and as blue as a sapphire, the bluest Eva had seen it for almost seven years. She breathed deeply, the air cool and fresh, as she imagined it would have been in Eden. She spent the day finding food, and when evening approached, it rained again. She and Sophie returned to the cave, and the wolves followed. The creatures plopped down at their feet and promptly went to sleep. Somewhere in the corner of her mind, Eva remembered that the prophet Isaiah spoke of a time when animals and humans would no longer fear each other. She couldn't quite explain it, but she decided to accept the animals into their temporary home. The next evening, 
Eva put Sophie down for the night when out of the darkness came the sound she'd been dreading. Human voices. Peeking her head out of the cave, she blanched in terror. Bright beams of flashlights sliced through the night, and there was no doubt they were moving directly toward the cave. In a panic, Eva grabbed Sophie and fled. In her haste, she tripped and fell into a bush. Sophie, unhurt but scared, began to cry. This way, a male voice shouted from behind them. Eva clapped her hand over the child's mouth and ran until she reached a ravine. She half jumped, half slid down the muddy slope to the bottom, where they crouched and waited. The flashlights passed by, not more than four feet overhead. A moment later, Sophie squirmed free, and a small cry escaped her lips. Eva silenced her, but it was too late. The flashlights turned back and aimed their blinding beams into her face. She was cornered. Do what you will with me, she pleaded, but please don't hurt my baby. Why would I hurt my own daughter? A familiar voice replied. Eva clambered out of the ravine and flung herself into her husband's arms. I thought you were dead, she sobbed as she covered his face with tears and kisses. Far from it, he replied. Now that I've found you, I've never felt better. We've been searching for more than a week. Ryan took Sophie from his wife and pressed the little girl to his chest, kissing the top of her head. I'm so glad we found you, princess. I was afraid I'd never see you or your mother again. Ryan's fellow searchers led the reunited family back through the woods to their car. Ryan said to the driver, Eva and Sophie are starving. Let's stop at the nearest restaurant before we drive to the city. Ryan, what are you thinking? We can't go into the city, Eva protested. Our photos are plastered on wanted posters everywhere, and with no authorized number, we can't buy food. Just relax and trust me. A smile spread across Ryan's face. At the restaurant, Eva gorged herself, and Ryan fed Sophie as he told his story. Our captors locked us in holding cells to wait for the next death train. But on the day it was supposed to arrive, news came that the armies of Judas Christopher and his allies had been annihilated in battle, and Christopher did not survive. His worldwide government system unraveled, and not knowing what else to do, his troops released their prisoners. We began searching for you and Sophie immediately. How could such a thing have happened? Eva was stunned. Are you ready for this? Christopher's conqueror was none other than Christ himself. He has come back, and it gets even better. He has resurrected all the martyrs from the tribulation period, along with the Old Testament saints and those who were raptured. He has set up his throne in Jerusalem, and he is now the sole ruler of the entire world. Eva could hardly absorb such astounding news. How is this all possible? Christ has sent these resurrected men and women everywhere around the globe as his sub-regents, cabinet officers, governors, and mayors to rule the planet under his direction. They have already been set up in the national and state capitals all over the world. But how could all this have happened so quickly? It seems that these resurrected humans are like the resurrected Christ of the Gospels, Ryan said. They could travel instantly to any place on earth. We're told that they were all selected for their tasks based on their pre-resurrection lives. It's the parable of the talents unfolding before our eyes. So what will we do? How will we live? Christ will assign a certain task to us. He has chosen redeemed men and women to serve in every capacity you can imagine. School administrators and teachers, building contractors, carpenters, engineers, heavy equipment operators, long-haul truckers, artists, musicians, computer programmers, you name it. Eva smiled. 
still trying to take it all in. Christ intends to rebuild everything that has been destroyed over the past seven years, Ryan continued. He has organized the project with proven experts to assure that it will be done with the highest quality and efficiency. As Eva assimilated the news, Ryan asked how she and Sophie had survived in the forest. She related the hardships they'd experienced and how she'd been on the edge of despair until the rains came and the wild animals turned harmless. The same change has come over all the people of the earth, Ryan said. Do you mean everyone has become a believer? No, but people are all peaceful and cooperative. I don't understand. How could the entire world change so suddenly? Well, from what I've gathered, Christ didn't just destroy Christopher and his demonic forces. He also chained Satan deep within a bottomless pit. It was Satan's influence that threw nature off kilter and infected animals with fear. His influence, along with that of his demons, also provoked and multiplied people's sins. With Satan and his hordes thrown overboard, the world can now steer a straight course. As they drove toward the city, Ryan turned to look at his wife. I hope you won't be too shocked when you meet resurrected people you knew before they died. Why would I be? Just wait. You'll see. Eva snuggled against her husband and dozed as Sophie slept soundly in his arms. Hours later, the car stopped in front of a small but neat frame house. This is ours for now, Ryan said. An emergency committee has been working to find housing for all fugitive Christians. Another committee has rounded up clothing, bedding, and furniture for us. Finally allowing herself to relax, Eva slept throughout the day and the following night. After breakfast the next morning, the doorbell rang. Good morning, Eva. A young woman was standing on the doorstep. I'm Catherine. I volunteered to take you grocery shopping today. Eva stared at the woman. She was the most flawless, beautiful human Eva had ever seen, both in face and form. What surprised her nearly as much, however, was that in spite of the woman's physical perfection, Eva already felt comfortable with her. Why does Catherine look so familiar? she wondered. Ryan, she called into the house, would you mind looking after Sophie? I'm going shopping with... Oh, don't bother your husband, Catherine interrupted. Let's take your daughter along, I insist. I love little girls. As Eva was lifting the child to put her into the baby seat of the shopping cart, Catherine reached out her arms. Let me carry her. It's been a while since I've held a baby. Throughout the trip, Catherine was helpful, friendly, kind, and amazingly good with Sophie. Eva couldn't shake the feeling that she should know this woman. That feeling intensified as she listened to her chatter and play with the child. She used expressions and vocal inflections that Eva was sure she recognized. Catherine, she finally said, I've felt all morning that I know you somehow. Have we met before? We certainly have, Catherine's silver laugh brightened the air. I'm your mother. My mother? Eva tried to register this new shock, but my parents were martyred three years ago, and my mom was 44. You can't be a day over 20, and while my mother was very beautiful, you make Miss Universe look like a troll. Yes, I've been resurrected. I am perfect now, exactly as God meant me to be before human genetics were corrupted in the fall. Just wait till you see your father. I swoon every time I look at him. Eva shook her head. It's going to be strange having parents who look younger than I do. Why didn't you tell me right off who you were? Well, 
Catherine smiled. I guess I just wanted to see how long it would take you to figure it out. Eva soon learned to identify the resurrected people. Not only were they young, beautiful, and perfectly healthy, they were also exceptionally intelligent and perceptive. They never made wrong decisions. They always treated others with respect, and they radiated a love that clearly flowed from Christ himself. As Ryan had told Eva, Christ's goal for the planet was restoration. The first task was to clean up the damage inflicted by the natural disasters, judgments, and wars of the tribulation period. The mayor called on Ryan to head an excavation company assigned to clear away rubble in preparation for new construction. He found managing people much easier than it had been before the millennium. His workers didn't complain, and they poured themselves wholeheartedly into their tasks. The same attitude prevailed everywhere. People worked together to restore neighborhoods. They conducted house raisings, much like the Amish barn raisings of previous centuries. People now preferred the company of friends, family, and neighbors to television. Balls, square dances, community sings, and chats on front porches became common evening activities. Natural disasters ceased altogether. Rain fell regularly over all the earth, and former deserts, even the Sahara, became arable. Crop failures were merely a distant memory. Hunger was now non-existent, and tyranny and persecution no longer poisoned the earth. The influence of Christ the King was felt in every facet of life. It didn't take long for a worldwide civilization to arise, one better than anything since Eden, yet not quite Eden. Though Satan had been banished, the unresurrected people of the earth still contended with their sinful nature. Infractions of the law still occurred. There were no courts, judges, or juries to try these cases, however. All offenders appeared before Christ himself, who acted not only as king, but also as judge. His judgments were final, and since his justice was perfect, there was no need for plea bargaining and no point in appealing. After Eva and Ryan raised ten children to maturity, they were delighted to discover that Eva was pregnant again. She stood before a bathroom mirror assessing herself. She was now over 50, yet she had the looks and health of a woman in her 20s. Citizens of the millennium aged slowly, and those who were resurrected didn't age at all. At this rate, she thought, I could live to be well over 800. That evening, Eva asked her father, Won't it be hard on you and Mom to see me sink slowly into old age while you remain forever at the pinnacle of human perfection? You don't need to worry about that, dear daughter, he replied. The time is coming when you, too, will be resurrected to the same ageless perfection. You know that this world, as it is, will last several more centuries, and then it will be remade. The real heaven will come down to earth, and God will again live with human beings as he did in Eden. Then creation will experience true perfection throughout eternity. Yes, Eva sighed. Then what all humanity has longed for since we lost Eden will become an eternal reality, and we owe it all to our glorious King. The Scripture Behind the Story All right, so we, uh, I think it's interesting, some of the uh, liberties they use to describe what's going to happen. I'm not sure if square dancing will actually be in the millennial reign, but I thought it was interesting that I guess they think that's good. But uh, if you look at Romans 8 up on the screen here, it's talking about really the 
uh, you know, we think about the, the curse of, uh, in the garden, but then also the curse that was placed uh, on the earth, which is kind of referencing there that that curse will be lifted during uh, this period of time as uh, we're looking at tonight. And so Romans 8, 19-22 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because of the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together uh, until now. And so I, I think when we think about uh, the curse that is not only on mankind, but the curse that is on the earth, and that will be uh, removed. And so um, in that passage we read in Revelations 20, verses 1 through 7, it, it uses six different times the, the word, or I guess the phrase, 1,000 years. And so what, what's the name that's been given to that 1,000-year period of time that, that we're listening about and what now we're reading about? The millennial reign. Does anyone know why it's called the millennial or the, the millennium? Anybody brilliant in here that knows? It's really pretty easy. It means a thousand years, and that's what uh, the word means, all right? So uh, it comes from the Latin word mele, which means a thousand, and annum, which means year, right? So that's where we get the word millennium. Um, it doesn't actually, Bible doesn't actually use that word. It uses uh, the phrase of 1,000 years. The, uh, so there is, in that passage, Revelations 20, verses 1 through 7, um, it mentions in verse 2, uh, if you're still there, the length of time that Satan will be bound, again, mentioning a thousand years. Verse 3, uh, it talks about the length uh, of time that Satan will be not able to deceive, all right? So obviously, if he is... Uh, thank you, bound, then he can't deceive us, right? Um, and then also verse 4, the length of time that the martyred saints will reign with Christ. Again, the, verse 5, the length of time that unbelieving will wait for the resurrection at the end of the millennium. Verse 6, the length of time those in the first resurrection will reign with Christ. And so verse 5, uh, we'll go back to that, says the length of time that unbelieving will wait for the resurrection, and that will be a resurrection to, to judgment, all right? So that won't be something they're really anticipating or hoping for. But verse 6, then, the length of time those in the first resurrection will reign with Christ. And verse 7, the length of time that passes until Satan is released for his final rebellion. Um, and so, uh, again, the Bible doesn't use this word, but here's some words that are synonymous with what we would say the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign of Christ. In Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. In Mark, the kingdom of God. Acts 3, times of refreshing. Verse 21 of Acts 3, times of restoration. The day of Jesus Christ, the fullness of times, and the world uh, to come. Um, all right, so let's walk through uh, the outline here. I'm going to try to uh, get done in time. I want to show you, several of you asked before I got, got up here this evening, if I could show you a few pictures from my trip uh, to Mexico, so I'll try to get through this quickly, and then we'll show you a few pictures, maybe. Um, so, number one, there, in anticipation of the kingdom, or really, uh, again, this is going to be going through some of the prophecy, uh, anticipating uh, the kingdom. So, Psalms two six through nine says, 
Yet I've set my king on, a, on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Which is again, if you were here last week, uh, what we talked about when, when Christ, his uh, second coming, destroys Satan and his, and, uh, his armies. Um, then another passage of Scripture, again, uh, we're under one anticipation, Daniel 2, verse 44. And in the days of these, uh, these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to the other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand uh, forever. Um, and then we move on to Isaiah. Isaiah 9, uh, 6 through 7. Again, this one uh, sounds familiar. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Um, another one, Zechariah 49. Again, these references aren't written down for you, but you might uh, write them down and look them up later. It says, Zechariah 49, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name uh, is one. And so um, all these prophecies really sum up Revelations 11, 15, what, what John saw in his vision. It says this, Then the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kings of the worlds have become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And uh, we look forward to that day, don't we? Uh, the, the day when the curse will be no more, and God and Jesus Christ will be reigning forever. Uh, so, number two, the coronation of the king. Again, we're going to, uh, I would encourage you to write these scriptures down and, and take some time to look, kind of go into a little deeper study on your own. Um, on these, we read this, uh, here we are, Revelations 19, 15 through 16. It says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it should strike the nations. He himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, we uh, talked about this particular passage last week when we talked about uh, when Jesus uh, returns and uh, the great battle that will take place. Um, also, Zechariah 14.3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Um, and then Luke chapter 1, verses 32-33, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Um, so then number three, the incarceration of Satan. This will be a great day, won't it? When uh, Satan is uh, not allowed to uh, deceive. Uh, one of the names of Satan is the deceiver, right? And uh, um, would you say that Satan has many people deceived? Yeah. Um, is it possible that Satan has us deceived in some areas of our life. Yeah, probably, probably so. I think that's why, you know, David prayed, search me, God, 
and, and see if there's any, what, wicked way in me. Um, you know, the old adage is, um, don't fool yourself, and yet you're the easiest person to fool, right? And, and uh, we can convince ourselves that everything's good, right, and that we're doing good, um, and, and um, how easy we can be deceived. And so in Revelations 20 here, it talks about when, when Satan will no longer for this thousand-year period be able to deceive. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Um, and he laid hold of this dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. What do you think... Um, the response in heaven is going to be like when, when that takes place. Be great rejoicing, won't they? As similar to and Luke talks about the rejoicing of heaven when one person gives their life to Christ. And I think there'll be similar rejoicing when, when uh, the angel throws him into the pit. And cast verse 3, cast him into the bottom of his pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive, should deceive the nations no more. To the thousand years were finished, but after these things he may be released for a little while. Um, Dr. Henry Morris, uh, just read a quote here. Uh, he's referencing this passage of Scripture. He says, Somewhere deep in the center of the earth, a prison cell has been reserved in the remotest recesses of the bottomless pit. Located at the very middle of the earth, one could not fall any deeper down. Such a place will be Satan's confined during the millennial. As far removed from human beings as possible to be on this planet. Uh, that'll be awesome, won't it? And, uh, and, and uh, it'll be even greater when uh, he is finally destroyed, right? This is a, really a temporary sentence. Um, number four, then, the administration of David. Administration of David. Jeremiah 30, verse 9, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Okay, again, so uh, the teaching here is that David would be the king. Obviously, Christ is uh, sovereign over him. And then Ezekiel 34, 23, 30, excuse me, 23 and verse 24 say, I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Also in Ezekiel, um, talks in verse 24, or chapter 37, verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell. They shall dwell there, they, their children, their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince uh, forever. All right, so again, talking of, of David. Um, and then the next one, the participation of the saints, or really it's talking about who's, who's going to be in the millennial reign. Revelations 20, uh, verses 4 through 6, um, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness. Remember, we talked about this, uh, those who will be uh, martyred in the millennial, or excuse me, during the tribulation period. Uh, so John witnesses them. Uh, during the millennial reign, it says they had not received, had not worshipped the beast or the image, and not received his mark on the foreheads. They had lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, verse five, then Revelation twenty says, "But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished." This is the first resurrection. So this is talking about 
um, those who die who are not believers, right? So during this thousand years, they'll just still be dead, all right? Um, and then verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has, put, has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years, all right? So that's going to reference specifically, it's referencing those who've been martyred during the tribulation period. And then also here in verse 6 references uh, believers who had already died, who had been resurrected in the rapture and met Christ in the air, they will also be a part of that uh, millennial reign. Um, let's, let's see, let's move on um, to number 6. Let's get through a couple of these here. The elimination of war. Micah 4, four says, But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord host, the Lord of hosts has spoken. Um, so again, when we think about um, peace on earth, when is uh, literally when is there going to be peace on earth? When is the next time it's really going to be peace on earth? Is during this period we're talking about, right? After uh, after Satan is bound for the thousand years. That's when peace on earth will be possible. Um, Isaiah 2.4 says, He shall uh, judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Won't that be great when, when there is no more war? Um, you know, uh, do you guys, I guess, hear on the news today with uh, the deal with uh, what Trump has, has um, declared that, that Jerusalem is the, the capital of Israel, um, which is not really anything new for America if you're not really familiar. Uh, Bill Clinton did that as well, uh, but we've just not, never done anything about it. So every six months... Um, that we don't go in. So right now, uh, we are housing the Capitol right in Tel Aviv. But we've already, back, uh, Bill Clinton already declared Israel or Jerusalem as the capital, that we see Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. But we haven't moved the actual capital or our embassy there. And every, so every six months since Bill Clinton has done that, every president has to basically put a stay that we're not moving yet to Jerusalem. Um, I think Trump is trying to move that forward, but what I, what I read a little bit today was that it's still two years away from moving all the offices of the embassy into Jerusalem. But I think it's a step in the right direction. As, as we have mentioned several times in here, that as believers, uh, I'll ask you the question, as believers, should we stand with Israel? Yes or no? Yes, because Scripture is very clear that if you stand with Israel, God will bless you. If you go against Israel, God will what? Curse you, right? And so there's that blessing uh, and curse. Um, Isaiah 2.4, again, we're talking about the elimination of war. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall... I already read that, didn't I? Go to the next one. Isaiah 11.6-8. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leper shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. And little child shall lead, shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and lions shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the co- cobra's hole. I, 
I'm not sure if there's still wisdom in that, but I guess you could. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Um, and so when you think about um, peace on earth extended not just nation on nation, but then also throughout mankind and through uh, also we think about what, what it would have been like in the Garden of Eden um, and when the earth is, is restored. So then uh, number three, number three, number seven, the realization of prosperity. Isaiah 35, verse 1, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Isaiah 41, 8, I will open rivers and desolate heights and the fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Um, it would be amazing to see the transformation that goes on in creation when the curse is lifted. Um, to think of... I've talked about this several different times, but there's some different authors have talked about. Uh, one of the ones I like talks about seven different seven spiritual pathways. You guys ever heard of the spirit, seven spiritual pathways? Um, look it up if you haven't. Um, and and so it kind of classifies what what we naturally or where we most or naturally worship God in what setting. Um, some of you would be. Um, intellectual. Uh, anybody intellectual in here? That's not the way I connect with God. Um, mine is what some have termed as a naturalist or a creationist, um, that I feel most connected with God in creation or in nature. Um, you know, when you see a beautiful s- sunset or a sunrise and you just feel like, oh, God is talking to me now. Um, I think all of us have a little bit of that, but that's where I'm most naturally, you know. And so look, look that up. Some of it's, it's through worship or through music. Um, but when I think about how awe-inspiring God's creation is now, to think what it was like before sin and what it will be like after sin. Um, the beauty of, of God's creation and the way it was intended to be. Um, number eight. Holiness, Isaiah 4, 3, And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. And so um, it's interesting to think that there will be um, still sin nature and still a choice for those who survived the, the tribulation period and are now living in the, the millennial reign. Um, and then they'll have children. And um, the children will also have a, a sin nature, right? And so, uh, but yet there won't be um, the 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 attacks of Satan on them. And and then, of course, is it referenced here in the audio about those who are um, have had a glorified body who are now on the earth? Um, Zechariah eight three says, "Thus says the Lord, um, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth." The mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Isaiah 4.3, it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone is recorded among the living um, in Jerusalem. Um, just to, I don't know, just kind of let your mind, uh, when, you, when you go away from here tonight, take some time to process through this and think about what will it, what will it be like? Um, it'll be heaven on earth to, to a degree. Um, and, and to think about what, what that's going to be like when, when uh, Christ returns. Number nine, uh, talking about 
long life. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in wilderness, streams in the, in the deserts. Um, Isaiah um, 30, excuse me, Isaiah 33, 24. And the inhabitant will not say, I'm sick. So no more sickness. That would be awesome, right? When there's no more sickness. Jeremiah 30, 17. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall an infant from there live but for a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall not day. Uh, shall not die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. And, and so, again, is it referenced here in the audio that, and if, if you remember the Old Testament uh, prior to the flood, when they were living hundreds and hundreds of years, and uh, again, so it's going to go back, um, the earth will be closer to um, what it was like in the atmosphere on the earth before the flood and, and thus long life and, and no sickness. Um, and then number 10 is the celebration of joy. Um, and I'm going to save that. I'm going to get back to that. So let's go to number 11 when we talk about worship. Uh, it says, Jerusalem will be the world's center of worship during the millennial reign. And let's see here. Get to where I'm going. Uh, Isaiah 2.2, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above, all, above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Micah 4.1 Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Zechariah 8.23 Thus says the Lord of hosts, in, in those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And again, it just talks to... Um, the, this, the centralization or everyone will worship God finally. And we won't have all this um, division. Satan won't be here to deceive. Um, and then the last one, 12, is the continuation of the kingdom. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority. And all power. Daniel 7 14. Then to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom to the one which shall not be destroyed. Um, are, you, are you looking for the coming of the Lord and for the return of Christ and how everything will change? And I, and I go back to, or you can just look on your outline there. Number 10, and uh, if you were watching the screen, you might have seen what I was scrolling through there. Um, anybody know who wrote Joy to the World, by chance? Anybody? It's one of the most famous hymn writers. You could probably think of it and you'd just guess, you'd be right. Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World over 250 years ago, and we sing it at Christmas, Right? But do you think he intended it to be a Christmas hymn? What was he writing about? He was writing about the second coming, all right? So some of you, let me, let's look at the words here, all right? And think, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. 
Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Heaven and nature sing, heaven and nature sing, right? Uh, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. So when he came the first time, did he come to reign? No. Uh, we still sing it at Christmas, but let men their songs employ. Um, repeat the sound of joy, repeat the sound of joy, right? And let's keep going here. He rules the world with truth and grace, makes the nations prove. And again, talking about the wonders of love. Uh, I don't know this, this verse. Does anybody know this verse? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thrones infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. Right? I think uh, it's kind of obvious why we don't sing that at Christmas. It doesn't really flow too well. But again, this really points out the fact that, that this hymn was written about the second coming. Um, I didn't do any much more research on why or when it started being sang at Christmas. Uh, but the first coming of Christ had to happen in order for what? There to be a second coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ also had to happen so that, that he could live the sinless, perfect life and become the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so just as, as grateful as I look forward to the second coming of Christ, we at this time of year celebrate the first coming of Christ. And aren't you grateful for that? That Jesus as talks about that he became, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. He humbled himself and he took on what John said is human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so as we look forward to the coming of Christ, we can also look back and be grateful for the coming of Christ. Aren't you grateful for Jesus and aren't you anticipating his soon return? Let's pray. God, I thank you for this night. Lord, I thank you for this study and the reminder, Lord, of, of um, the return, the soon return of Christ, where we see everything, um, all, the stage is set, Lord, for him to return. And Lord, we anticipate that. But Lord, as we anticipate that, we want to um, be faithful to do what you've called us to do, and to live how you've asked us to live, and Lord, to share uh, the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.